All right. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at the last part of chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11. So I want to read verse 1 of chapter 11 and verse 13 of chapter 11, and then we'll come, I'll come back to it. Now when Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. In verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Father, we pray that you would use this time to help us to actually draw near to you. Uh, Lord, that we would, we would, would take that, that, that act of faith, the, the, the act that you call us to most generally across the board, which is to pray. Father, we, we pray with the disciples, teach us to pray. Help us to prioritize your presence. Please, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So every time there's a sermon on prayer, it's like the easiest thing in the world to make people feel guilty. Because all of us feel like we just don't pray as we should. We don't pray as we ought to pray. We don't pray as often as we ought to pray. We're not as enthusiastic about prayer as we should be. And it's important, though, to, to recognize, especially in this context, when Jesus is going to teach his disciples to pray, when we're going to see what it means for them to seek God, seek the presence of God, that he does not use guilt. Guilt might be a good motivator to, or a good indicator of where we're maybe not doing what we should do, or where we are doing something we shouldn't do. So, so guilt can be a useful tool. But Jesus is not using guilt to teach his disciples to pray. He's using goodness, specifically the goodness of God. And so we're going to talk about today the reality of what does it mean to practice or prioritize God's presence through prayer? What does that mean? What does that look like? But before we get into the text, we need to kind of think about, we need to kind of give maybe some theological foundation for the presence of God. Theological is simply a, a fancy word of saying we need to think the right ideas about God and His presence. So, so what does the Bible say? What does God's Word say about his presence. Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us that God is not confined to space and time, that he's always everywhere at all times. It's not like, like God is just bigger than everything else, and so we're kind of near his big toe here in England or something. It's that God is, is not like us. He's not physical in the way we are. He's not confined to space and time, which also means we can't hide from God. There's no place we can go where God's not there. You can read Psalm 139 later on to, to see this truth uh, spoken of. But also what we see in the testimony of Scripture is that God wants to be with His people. We see this in, the, in, in creation itself, the fact that God creates a perfect environment for people to dwell in when He, when he, when he creates man to dwell in, and that He's there with them in the garden in the first part of creation. We see this when God begins to, to call his people to himself. 
and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. What does he command Moses, the leader, to do? He commands him to build this tabernacle, this tent where God would himself dwell in. And of course, then later on, when they made a permanent home in Jerusalem, there's the, 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 the specific instructions to build the temple, kind of the permanent site of the tabernacle. And of course, the Bible speaks of Jesus as the temple of God or the tabernacle of God. We read in John chapter 1 where it talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then it says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. So that Jesus himself is the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God. And not only that, the scripture teaches that God the Holy Spirit dwells in every single, every single believer in Jesus. Every one of us. He dwells in every single believing congregation where Jesus is trusted and exalted. The Spirit of God is there. We can read that in 1 Corinthians. Now, the reason this is all really important is because when we're talking about prioritizing God's presence, we're not trying to talk about kind of hyping up some mystical experience, per se. We're not talking about trying to convince God to come show up. Come, come here, Lord, because we know you're not here right now. We're trying to recognize, we're seeking to recognize the God who's made himself present. The God who's available to us. And this should be a priority to us. Now, we see this illustrated in this first story in chapter 10, verse 38. In fact, I, before we get into this little section in verses 38 to, to 42, I, I, I want to bring something to your attention, something that I didn't really think about until uh, uh, preparing this uh, for this lesson this week. And that is, in this story, you have Jesus and you have two women and nobody else is talked about. And the reason that's a big deal beca is because the first readers of Luke would have thought, hey, where's the men? You know, women are only kind of half-citizens. Where's the men? It's not a real story unless there's men involved. And the reason that's important is Luke, again, is wanting us to, to see something unique about Jesus. Jesus who, who crosses cultural barriers. <coughs> Jesus who, yeah, maybe the Jews might have thought, of course God wants to have a relationship with women, but probably through their husbands or their fathers. And we're seeing this story, no? Jesus wants a relationship with men. He wants a personal, or with women. He wants a personal relationship with them as well. Now, with that in mind, think of this story, right? Okay, it says, now as they, verse 38, as they were, went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, what we're going to see in this first section is the priority of relationship, that God's priority for us in prayer, in seeking Him, is relationship. And, and here's what we, we, we notice. Mar Martha and Mary, they both want Jesus in their home. They want Him. They, they love Him. We know that Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, John, the Gospel of John tells us, these were people whom Jesus loved. These were those who had a close relationship with Him. And so these people, they, they, they love Jesus. They want Him there. But as we're going to see in the context, just because they both want them there doesn't mean they're enjoying his presence. In fact, it's important for us to recognize that environment alone doesn't determine the priority of relationship. So, so it's re I'm really glad you guys came. I'm really glad those of you who are watching online live with us and those of you who are watch later. I'm really glad that you would set aside the time to, to come and worship with us. This is great. It's good that you prioritize. But as we all know, right, we can come to church and not really meet with God. We can be involved in Christian things and not really 
have any sense that God is actually with us, not really practiced his presence. So environment alone by itself doesn't determine priority. So, so what happens next? Verse 40, it says, it says specifically, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Now, please don't see this, the Martha, Martha, don't see this in the same way we saw what our parents did to us when we were young, like, like my mom would say to me or my dad, John Charles, you knew you're in trouble, they use your middle name, you know that? <clears throat> this is not what's going on here. When, when Jesus is using Martha's name twice, Martha, Martha, he's, he's implying to her, he's wanting her to see, I, it's Martha, I know you. Martha, I, I, I care, I, I know what you're thinking, I know where you're at. Jesus is not condemning her serving. He's exposing her distractions. In fact, interesting when it says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled. It's like two, uh, two different words that talk about the same experience. Anxious being what you're feeling in the, in the inside. Uh, trouble being what you think you're blaming it on, on the outside. And, and this is how she's feeling. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand. Service is not meant to distract us from God's priority of relationship. It's not that she was wrong to go serve. She was doing a good thing to go serve. I want to make a nice meal for Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue is, he doesn't call us to serve instead of relating to him. He calls us to serve as a means to relate to him. This is what he calls us to. So, so how do we know when we're serving or when we're distracted with serving? Well, one thing is, if, if our heart says, Lord, don't you care? Just like Martha says to the Lord about Mary. Don't you care? Well, this is when we know that we're, we're not actually walking with the Lord in our service. We're kind of serving instead of walking with the Lord. Lord, don't you care? The point is, though, this is what's not meant to, to service is not meant to distract us from the God's priority relationship. But, but notice what Jesus says to Martha in verse 42. He says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now here we see Mary actually experiencing or actually pursuing God's priority of relationship, wanting to simply sit at Jesus' feet and hear what he has to say. And I want you to notice what Jesus says about this. It's so important. Jesus says one thing is necessary. So this priority of, of, of seeing God as one whom we are meant to relate to is, a prior, is not just a priority, it's a necessity. It's needed. But also, listen, it's not only necessary, it says Mary has chosen the good portion. She was intentional about it. It wasn't just that she recognized, okay, yeah, this is important, but I better go help my sister. She thought, no, I, I, this is what I need. I need to sit before his feet and hear his word. She chose it. She was intentional. But this is the part that really blows me away. He says, this will not be taken away from her. In other words, listen, this priority of relationship with God, as far as Jesus is concerned, it's guaranteed. He's not going to push us away. When we say, okay, Lord, the, the most important thing is that I'm rightly relating to you, that I'm seeing you as you are, that I'm coming to you as you are, that I'm sitting at your feet, that I'm hearing what you have to say. Jesus is saying, that's not going to be taken away from you. 
Now, I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, but you don't understand. I get so busy. I have so many things going on. I have so many responsibilities. I don't always have time just to spend with God. Well, listen, that's not Jesus taking it away from you. That's us just getting distracted. It's us being more like Martha than Mary. And I got to tell you, I'm definitely more like Martha than Mary. The point is, when we're talking about prioritizing his presence, we're talking about this priority of relationship. Lord, I want to be near you. I want to know you. Next bit. <clears throat> Jesus begins to teach them how to pray. This is what we're going to talk about, the priority of authenticity. That we can't just want to, to relate to him. We need to relate to him in an authentic way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. As we read before, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, we, we know from Luke's gospel especially, right, Jesus was in the habit of kind of sneaking off and go, going to pray to his father, right? He was, he was spending this time alone with God. This was often his habit. And so one of these times, and I, and I kind of imagine that they, they, they're, they're camping out at one place, you know, as they're traveling for Jesus' ministry, and, and as they kind of wake up with the sun rising, they look around, and there's Jesus again, maybe 50 meters away, kneeling down, seeking after the Father, praying to the Father. And then he kind of gets up, and he wanders back to them, and they look at him, and they just think, wow, teach us how to do that. I'm reminded of, uh, of my friend Rob Dingman, his his kind of story, his testimony of how he came to know God personally. He grew up in the church, but he really didn't know God personally. And he went to this church, and, 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 and he hears this guy preach, and he says to himself, that guy knows God. And I want to know God the way that guy knows God. And I can imagine that times a hundred or a, a million is what the disciples experienced when they saw Jesus pursuing the Father. They thought, he actually knows the Father. I, I, I want to pray like that guy prays. I want to know God the way Jesus knows God. See, what they were doing is they were learning from authentic examples. And this is what we need to do. It's amazing how, how sometimes we, we are, I don't know, maybe naive about the fact that we actually do learn from examples. We do kind of watch and listen to how people pray, and, and we kind of tend to imitate that. But, but the thing is, it's not so much of making sure that our words are right when we pray. There, it, that can be really helpful. I mean, books of prayer can be helpful, just praying out what other people prayed. That can be helpful. But the most important thing is not so much the words that we're saying when we're praying. It's, it's who we're praying to. It's who are we talking to. And so, you know, the first priority of authenticity is making sure we're learning from authentic examples, people who actually seem to really know God. But then Jesus begins to teach them how to pray. And, of course, we get what's into what's called the Lord's Prayer. But actually, it probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he's teaching the disciples how to pray. Now, I also want you to, to, to notice, I want you to recognize something, okay? And that is that in, in Luke's gospel here, in many of your versions, like, like mine, it's less wordy than like what we see in some versions, like maybe New King James, or what we see in, say, uh, 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 what we see like in Matthew's gospel when, when, when Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And there's something on purpose about that. Don't get freaked out about that. This is Luke wanting to just kind of make a point. It probably Jesus uh, taught this prayer several times. But th let's talk about what he says. Notice he says, verse 2. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your 
kingdom come. In other words, as I just said, what Jesus does when he's teaching them to pray, he says, first things first, how do you see God? Do you see God as uniquely authentic? Do you see him as one who is pure? The, the, the theologians talk about the simplicity of God. It doesn't mean that God's not too bright. It, what it means is that God can't be divided. That he, who he is, he wholly is. You can't kind of divide him up in parts. And, and how he lives, how, how he, he is in his being is utterly consistent and holy and right. There's something uniquely authentic about God. He never changes. He's always good. This is what the Bible reveals. And so when we're coming to God, the, the, the part of the priority of authentic, uh, authenticity is, is that we're seeing God as uniquely authentic. God, there's no one like you. We sang that, didn't we? There is no one like you. There is none besides you. Open up my eyes and wonder. God, there's no one like you. We're not just praying to some random God, nor are we praying to a God of our imagination. We're praying to the God who's revealed himself through Jesus. There's something uniquely holy and special about him. But then he goes on to say, verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. Now, the idea here is, is just what it says. There were some of the, uh, around the second or third century, some of the, the church fathers, those kind of first teachers of Christianity, they began to what's called allegorize uh, th this kind of thing. They began to look at the scriptures and say everything kind of has a hidden meaning behind it. Sometimes it was insightful. A lot of times it just didn't really make much sense, to be honest. And to me, this is one of it. They said, okay, this daily bread must mean, and they kind of allegorize it, must mean something like this. It must mean this... It was kind of like, you know, they just went kind of nuts with the allegory behind it. But actually, I think what Jesus is, is, is teaching people to pray is for their bread, for what they need on a day-by-day -day basis, for their authentic needs. And I want to come back to that in a little bit when we read this parable that Jesus teaches. But the point is, we, we not only need to see God as uh, uniquely authentic, we need to seek God with our authentic needs. God, I, I, I need this. I need this. Then he says, tell them to pray, and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now we could separate all these things, but I want to put them in one category, which is we're trusting God to make us authentically holy. Now, now this is important. When we think of holy, don't think of like big square hat or, or someone who has to dress in a certain way. Or, or someone who, who seems to be kind of have their head in the clouds all the time. The, the word holy means set apart. That's what it means. Set apart for God. Literally it means to be distinct. To be distinct. Now, it, it, this is important because here Jesus is teaching his disciples to start their prayers off with asking for forgiveness. And the assumption is they're going to need to ask this a lot. The, the reality is they, they need to see that it, unless God washes me clean, I won't be holy. I, 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 I couldn't be right before him. I need him to cleanse me. And the good news is that, as, as we know, uh, the, the rest of the story, as we're reading this past Jesus' death and resurrection, the good news is Christ died to make sure that we could be clean. But also there's this issue of, okay, now as God is so quick to forgive us, so faithful to forgive us, we ourselves are going to forgive all those who are indebted to us. 
And the idea, again, is it's very simple, something we see all throughout the Gospels, but it's, it's hugely important that, that if we've been forgiven so much, we should be forgiving others. Now, this is where it gets kind of tough, isn't it? This is where we recognize that holiness is something that we can't produce on our own. Because if anyone has been a victim of abuse, or if anyone has been in a situation where you've been exploited, or maybe you've been physically bullied, or maybe you've been shamed, if you've ever had these experiences, you know the person who's done that to you, the idea of being asked to forgive them seems like, whoa, how could I possibly do this? And that's understandable that you'd feel that way. But when Jesus says this, he's not ignorant of the suffering that we go through. He's wanting us, listen, he's wanting to make us set apart as he is set apart. He's wanting to make us authentically holy. And to be authentically holy, not only do we need to be forgiven and cleansed, but we need to recognize that it's only by his power that we're able also to forgive and cleanse other people. At least forgive them for what they've done against us. That, that it's, it's him who needs to do this. In fact, when he says, lead us not into temptation, he's not saying, God, don't tempt us, because the Bible's really clear in the book of James, God doesn't tempt anyone. What he's saying is, Lord, don't bring me into a place where I'm going to fall. Lord, please protect me from those things that would snare me. This is not the, the prayer of a coward like, oh, no, I'm so afraid of everything. No, this is a prayer of someone who's humble enough to admit, God, I need you to protect me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to make me able to forgive others. I need you to protect me. All these things have to do with us being set apart for his purposes. This is important because when we're talking about prioritizing his presence. Yes, we're talking about a real relationship that the creator of the universe wants to have with us because of Jesus. But also, listen, we're talking about an authentic relationship, one that is pursuing what God wants to pursue for us, one that wants what God wants for us. Now, this is the last bit, and in one sense, maybe the most important bit, because I don't know about you, but maybe this is the thing that, that maybe, that tends to keep me from prayer. When I don't have this as a priority, this is when I see my prayer life really kind of go off base, and that is the priority of assurance. And Jesus starts off by sharing this parable. Look at verse 5. After he says, here's how, when you pray, say this, he says in verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in, in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, some of you guys have heard this story before, and so you're going, okay, I think I'm familiar with this, but let's be honest. This is a weird story. For us in the 21st century, what a weird story. Who's going to come knock on your door saying, give me bread? Go to the store, man. <laughs> Go down to Tesco. It's open 24 hours. Buy your own bread. What are you knocking on my door for? And what about this idea of my kids are in bed with me? Well, that's kind of weird. Why? But you have to understand, listen, what, what Jesus is, is who he's talking to, right? He's telling a story that first century believers would have completely understood. 
In that day, most people, especially poor people, they lived in very small one-room homes. And when I say one room, I mean one room. You would open the front door, you would probably step up onto a platform. On that platform is where they cooked and you ate and you all, everybody slept around that fire. And then off to the side on the platform, especially for the poor families, there would be a place on, more like at ground level where the animals came in at night to be safe. This is, this is what you, you, you had. So if you, those of you who, who've had children or have children, you know when you get the little ones to sleep, if someone, after how hard that is to get them to sleep, when someone wakes them up, you're like, oh. <laughs> can you imagine? It's midnight, yeah, plus the cow, all that's going on at the same time. But, but the, the reason Jesus is telling the story is because in this culture, listen, in this culture, nothing was more important than being hospitable. And so if someone came to you and needed a place to stay, it would be shameful not to have them come in. And it would be shameful not to offer them something to eat. And so if you didn't have anything to offer them to eat, and don't forget, too, they didn't have Tesco to run down to. They were making their food on a daily basis. So if you're out of food and someone comes at midnight and you have anything to get them, you're going, oh, no, what do I do? If I turn them away, I'm shamed. But if I invite them in and I don't have anything to give them, I'm shamed. What do I do? You go to your friend's house. Please give me three loaves. Please. And the friend says, no, my kids are sleeping. Stop knocking on my door. But because you keep knocking, eventually he gets up, <laughs> gives you the three loaves and says, go away. Because the friend himself doesn't want to be shamed by not being hospitable. Now, now the reason I'm using the word shame is on purpose. Because it, look at verse 9, that word that Jesus used, uh, it's translated in the ESV, impudence. It, it, it's, it's persistence in other, uh, other versions. It really means this, shamelessness. It's like, the idea is, I'm going to knock at your door at midnight. I don't care if you think I'm a fool. It's, I'd rather be shamed this way than have the shame of not meeting this need. Now, this is, this is important. Now, follow me on this. Tie this back to give us this day our daily bread. Because the, the idea here is that, that Jesus is telling this parable to say, listen, yes, you might feel ashamed like, oh, I should have had enough. I should have enough to be hospitable, but I don't have enough. But because you feel ashamed about that, you're not willing to shame yourself and go to the neighbor and say, please help me. And she's saying, no, you wouldn't do that. You would go to the neighbor because you would want to make sure, even if you're embarrassed with your friend, your neighbor friend, you, you would be more humiliated if you didn't meet this need. When, we were called, when we're called to pray, give us this day our daily bread, the idea is not just like, Lord, give me my very best, or give me my, uh, just my minimal needs. It is, Lord, just give me my authentic needs. You know, I've noticed, sometimes we don't go to God with our needs because we're ashamed that we have needs. Especially when we find ourselves thinking, well, it's my fault that I have all this need. I made the mistake. I, I didn't plan right. I didn't budget right. I, you know, I got mad at my boss. Whatever the case might be, something happened. I don't have what I need. And so we feel ashamed, and so we don't go to God. And the, one of the points of this parable is that we would realize, no, it's much more shameful to not go to God than it is the fact that you had a need in the first place. Do you understand? Now, this is not about making you feel guilty, remember? This is about us understanding God's willingness, His goodness. You see, because 
in this idea of the priority of assurance, why Jesus is telling this parable is that we would understand that it's assurance that motivates persistence. Why do we quit praying? Because we're not sure that God's actually going to answer. Why do we stop seeking God? Because we're not sure he really wants us to find him. And Jesus is telling this parable so that we would know, listen, no, no, no. If you want to persevere, you have to know. Listen, as much as you would know that your neighbor friend might be a bit grumpy with you, but he's going to give you the three loaves because he doesn't want to be ashamed and you don't want to be ashamed, it's better for you to humble yourself and say, please, I'm so needy. Because you know you're going to get what you need. This is what God's calling us to. He's calling us to come to him as needy people and shamelessly say, Lord, I am radically needy and I need you to meet my needs. Now, in case you're thinking, oh, I don't know if that's so true, John, look at verse 9. Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Do you notice this? What's Jesus doing? He's giving the disciples an assurance of God's response. God is going to respond. Jesus has promised the Father is going to respond. We sometimes pray like we're trying to convince God to help us out. We're trying to overcome his reluctance. But listen, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's grabbing onto God's willingness. That he really does want to meet our needs. He really is a good father. In fact, this is what Jesus says about it, right? Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? No, he's... Don't over-spiritualize this. This is simply him just saying, look, you're not going to do that, are you? You know, as, as rubbish of a dad that maybe we can all be at times, we're not going to give our kids something deadly and poisonous instead of something good when they ask for something good. We're not going to do that. And we're, we have a, a nature that is bent towards evil. This is what Jesus is saying. And yet we're going to give our, good, our kids good gifts. Are, are we better than God? Are we better fathers than God? Well, the answer is no. See, what Jesus wanted to do is not just teach them, listen, yes, assurance is going to motivate uh, pers uh, persistence, but also you need to know, you need to be assured of God's response because you need to be assured of God's character. The kind of father that he is. This is what motivates us to pray. This is what makes us want to prioritize his presence. And then Jesus says this in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now I can imagine when, when Jesus first said these things to the disciples, that they were both encouraged and also confused. The Holy Spirit. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, only comes upon prophets, priests, and kings. The Old Testament's clear about that. But don't forget, listen, don't forget, Luke's Gospel is part one of a two-part series. It's Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. 
And the book of Acts, listen, the book of Acts is all about the work of Christ in his church through his Holy Spirit. And so listen, understanding this, remember Luke is writing this stuff down for this guy, Theophilus, after the fact, after the, the, the day of Pentecost. And this is for our benefit as well, that we would recognize, listen, that, that when we talk about this priority of assurance, assurance, we need to be assured of God's present and powerful work in our lives. Again, go back to this prayer. The, the, the disciples' prayer, right? We're, we're called to, uh, to trust God to make us authentically holy, to be the kind of people who trust Him that we're forgiven. And no matter how bad our sin has been, God will wash it away. We're meant to be those who are willing to forgive people. No matter how bad they sin against us, we're going to forgive them because we know how much mercy and forgiveness God has given us. We're, we're those who are meant to call on God and say, God, i got to trust you that you can help me get through temptation, walk past temptation, that you can do this for me. And it sounds so like, well, it's ideal, but I, I just don't know I can do it. This is why we need God's Holy Spirit. And prayer, listen, prayer is how we learn to depend on God and His present work in our lives by His Holy Spirit. I mean, think about even the situation with Martha. She's distracted with much serving. How do you get past that, man? I don't know exactly what that feels like. I was supposed to take a three-month sabbatical in the beginning of 2020, and then a global pandemic happened, and I couldn't do it. So I know what it's like to feel distracted by much serving. I know what it's like, how hard it can be when you just feel like, I just don't want to do anything else. How do we find the strength to keep seeking God when we just are so exhausted? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. We say, God, would you give me your Holy Spirit? Would you empower me with your Holy Spirit? Would you come upon me afresh by your Holy Spirit so that I can do the things that you want me to do, so that I can, so I can know your presence, your present, powerful working in my life. We need to recognize that though prayer is something that people of all faiths do, everybody of all faiths, no matter what their view of God is, everyone who believes in that God prays. But what Jesus teaches us, what the scripture teaches us, listen, is that actually having access to God, expecting this God to really dwell with us, not kind of dwell over there, but actually by his spirit dwell with us, even in us, that is something unique, a unique privilege for those who know and follow Jesus. This kind of access. So I, I want to challenge you with some just basic practical ways to respond. Okay? I want to encourage you to set aside 15 minutes to sit at his feet. 15 minutes. Just, just again, this is, not a, this is nothing about guilt. This is about, this is about God's goodness. What do you think God can do in 15 minutes to encourage you to build your faith? Just 15 minutes Maybe your Bible's open, maybe the gospel is open, and you're just sitting at Jesus' feet, and you're saying, and you just pray, Lord, I, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I, I, I want to know you. I, wanna, I want to live in the reality that you're actually with me. And when you're doing that, speak honestly to God. 
Speak honest about your own sinfulness. Don't hide. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to, to actually try to make it sound worse than it is either. Just be honest. Lord, I did this, and I'm pretty sure you didn't want me to. Lord, I don't want to do this, but I'm pretty sure that you do want me to. Lord, I, I would like to do that, but I just don't know how I'm ever going to find the strength to get it done. Just be honest with him and ask him to help you. Lord, if you actually do dwell in me, can you help me to not do that thing I, don't, you, I know you don't want me to do or to do that thing I, I know you want me to do or to, to know that you're with me? And this is really important. Listen, know that God is as good as Jesus is revealing him to be right here. He's a better father than we could ever hope to be. Lord Jesus, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he produces love in our lives, love for you, love for one another, love for the truth, love for those that are lost. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Produce that in us right now, we pray. And we commit to you the rest of the time of our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thank you guys for coming today. And we will see you all soon.